Welcome everyone to Seek Go Create. This is where we redefine success in leadership, business, and ministry. And boy, I've had a unique preparation for our guest today. I'll get to it in just a moment, but I'll just give you a little glimpse. I don't usually watch uh, a movie and a documentary uh, all in preparation to interview and speak with someone today. I have done just that and I'm excited because everything that I believe we will be discussing relates to the theme of the show, which is redefining success. So I'm glad you're here. Before I get to our guest, I'll introduce him in just a moment. I just want to remind everyone that me, Tim Winders, your host, has finished writing my debut novel. It's titled Coach, A Story of Success Redefined. And uh, yeah, kind of unique. I'm a leadership coach, business coach, but yet I've written a novel. And I'll tell you what, a lot of the themes that we're going to be talking about are in the novel, oddly enough. The main character, Cooper Travis, is uh, at the beginning contemplating suicide. He's got some legal issues with the company he's in. And uh, the rest of the story is him going through redemption and going through just a lot of a lot of things, some almost supernatural, to uh, identify what his life really should be all about. I encourage you to go to seekgocreate.com forward slash book, seekgocreate.com forward slash book. Depending on when you go there, you could either download a free copy of the first chapter or you could get details on how to get the book if it's after the release. I would love for you to do that. Give me some feedback. Again, first novel I've written and uh, boy, I think it applies so well to the conversation we're having today because it's just a great fit with uh, the conversation today. I'm, I'm super excited about this conversation. Uh, we have Mark Whitaker as our guest, and I'm just going to read the quick bio here, and then we're just going to get into some deep conversation. Mark Whitaker is the highest level executive to ever turn whistleblower in U.S. history. Yeah, that's a grabbing headline right there. His undercover work with the FBI during the ADM scandal was the inspiration for a major motion picture, The Informant, starring Matt Damon. I watched the movie back in late 2009, I believe, when it came out, and I just rewatched it this last weekend, and Matt Damon starred as Mark Whitaker. Uh, it also was my the, twin, my twin, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all are related, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was also the inspiration. And this I actually enjoyed this much more. The Discovery Channel documentary titled Undercover. Drawing from his unique history, Mark provides a one of a kind insight into corporate ethics. Listen to all these things. Corporate ethics, corporate greed and the warning signs of flawed corporate leadership. So much more there. But Mark, welcome to Seek Go Create. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, Tim. Yeah, so Matt, so, being a part of it. so Matt Damon's your twin, huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, man, I, it's obvious, right? <laughs> I, I think you're. I, is it, and, and is it the the Matt Damon twin, like the Born Identity, where you used to work out and get really ripped, or is it the? <laughs> Anyway. Maybe Matt Damon's grandpa, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mark, there's so many things that I wanted us to discuss, but kind of got a tradition here. There's a question that I asked first right out of the gate, and and it, it goes something like this. We bump into each other, we meet, and I just ask you the question, Mark, what do you do? What do you typically tell people when they ask you that question? You know, uh, 30 years ago, because that case happened, by the way, when I was 32 years old, I'm 64 now. So it, half, it was half my life 
ago, the price fixing case. And 30 years ago, the eight years I was at ADM, I quickly probably would have said I'm divisional president of uh, the biotech division of ADM, the 56th largest company on the Fortune 500. And that would have been my reply 32 years ago. But today I'd say uh, uh, husband to ginger, 42 years, three uh, adult children, and amazingly blessed to have a second chance in life and that my family stayed with me. That's what I would say today. Yeah, and I, I think that whole theme of second chance just so fits with what we love to talk about is just success and redefining it. And, um, you know, I, I think I just want to play on that a little bit before we kind of back up a little bit and bring people up to speed that may not know a lot of the background and things like that. I, just today, you know, you said you're 64 years old and you use the term husband and father and and didn't really give a lot of business titles or, you know, material possessions when you asked, answered the question, what do you do? But how do you define success now, Mark? Because in just kind of doing background, it seems like that has changed quite a bit for you over the years. How do you define success now? Yeah, I would look at success today, again, a lot different than I would have 32 years ago. It was all about the size of house I had, and the type of corporate jet that I had at the time. And, and you know, it was all about me, really an example of selfish leadership and materialism and, and title and the size of the company. And today I would I feel strongly that success is really more a, a life of significance, kind of what you're leaving behind when I'm no longer here because I can see the end of life a lot closer than I can the beginning of life. And it's more what I can leave behind and, 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 and hope to leave the world a, a better place than, than when I came in. And, and, and for my children and, and, and for the ones that I, I spent a lot of time in mentoring and discipling individuals. And, and a lot of those are, are younger, you know, 20, 30 years younger, even the age, some of those, the age I was at the time, uh, when the ADM price fixing case happened, and I and I pray and I feel strongly that a lot of those are are getting wisdom way beyond their years that they will also disciple others younger than them. So that continues well beyond uh, when you're no longer here on earth. And to me, that's really success: the uh, leaving the world a better place and hopefully impacting people where they're pouring into other people, sharing some of the things they learned where they learned the difference between a life of significance and a life of success. Mm. Hey, hey, Mark, this is even beyond when I'm gone. Yeah, that's, I love that. You know, before we hit record and now since we've been recording, you've used the word significance. I, 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 don't, I wasn't keeping exact count, but I would say at least three or four times. So to me, and one of the things when I go in and work with clients and I try to help people and organizations, leader t leadership teams establish their value system, I listen to the words that come out of their mouth when they're having casual conversation or when they're not uh, standing up in front of the room or the group. And, and, and words like that jump out at me. So why does significance, what, what's significant about the word significance to you? Because uh, it seems like it's part of, it's deep into your value system right now. Well, I mean, significance to me is even when you think back 32 years ago, when I thought that success was 
a 13,000 square foot house and an eight car garage and having a, a, a Falcon 50 at my disposal, you know, from the, from the company where they had seven corporate jets. And, you know, that was to me how I would have defined success. Then. But you think about that 32 years, I had a Ferrari, two Mercedes, two BMW, all that's rust hmm. and, and garbage now. I mean, all of that 32 years ago. So there's no, there's, there's no long-term value of any of that. It's just selfishness. I mean, really, I would say my, my role in, in, and the other executives that I was involved with on the price fixing case, what a great example of selfish leadership. You know, when we talk about servant leadership, well, kind of a, a good place to start is what happens when you're not a servant leader? Well, you're a selfish leader. That's the alternative. And we were selfish leaders. We, we drove those prices higher with that price fixing scheme, that international cartel. And by driving it higher, it drove the stock price higher. A lot of our income was in stock options. So therefore we earned more money and, you know, bought nicer things and more cars and so on. I mean, that's selfishness. And that has, I mean, I I tell you something, Tim, when when I got that fry, I thought, boy, there's a heaven, this is it. But amazingly, a couple of weeks later, you're asking what's next. And I think I could have got to the level of Bill Gates. I really do during that period of time in my life. I mean, I was Justin Bieber before Justin Bieber. <laughs> I mean, I really was. I thought I was Bon Jovi, you know, the Jad Mansion and the eight-car garage. And I look how back how silly that is, that that's all rust. And 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 like I said, I could have got to the level of Bill Gates, and I would and I think I would have been saying two or three weeks later, what's next? There's got to be more than this. And through this journey of brokenness, and I know you'll get into that as we move forward, through that journey of brokenness, I learned really what is important. I, I found I found what how you fill that void in the heart that there was no car, no jet, and no mansion was going to do. Because I at 32 years old, I had it all. Divisional president of the 56th largest company in America. I mean, my wife and I had children. People drive by our home and say, that man has it all. And I had the void the size of Grand Canyon in my heart during that time when they thought those eight years in that position that I had it all. Yeah. The, first of all, I want to acknowledge how it, how impressive it is that someone can bring Justin Bieber, Bon Jovi and Bill Gates all into one few sentence paragraph that you did. That's very impressive. <laughs> um, but, uh, but secondly, I think this is a great time, Mark, for us to back up. Let's go back to the early nineties. And let's give people just a refresher. We're not going to go deep into all the, the details. There's places people can go for that. The documentary, I think, is a great place. And there's some resources on your website that we'll mention later. We don't want to get into the gory details, but I, but I want us to kind of set the stage. You've done it very well. You had a big house, 32 years old. Um, you know, you're in, I think it was Illinois. I think Decatur is that kind of where they were located. Right, right, um, right. Here's something that's fascinating to me. I'm a business guy and I know a lot, I, I read a lot of business. I understand a lot of business models, companies, things like that. But the company that you were working for at that time to me is what I call one of these stealth companies. They're huge. They're big that no one really knows about them. Tell us first of all, what was ADM Archer Daniels Midland and then, and then let's kind of quickly run through kind of what happened, your role. We're not going to get bogged down. I'll keep moving along. I've, I've seen you explain it pretty quickly. So can we do that? Because I want to, 
I want to really talk about lessons learned, but I think until we talk about what happened, people may not be able to, to catch up with us. Yeah, basically, Archer Daniels Midland is one of the largest ADM, commonly known as, is one of the largest food additive companies in the world. They'd be larger today than even then. I think they're number 48 or 49 on the Fortune 500. That means, you know, one of the top 50 largest public companies, publicly traded companies in America. We were number 56 at the time, about 70 billion in revenue, 30,000 employees. And I want to make it clear, Decatur was a great town. Uh, the ADM, 30,000 people went to work uh, doing the right thing every, every day with the right moral compass. So it wasn't a bad company with bad people, but it had four top lead, leaders that were selfish leaders, that it really had four bad apples. Hmm. And I was one of those bad apples. I would have been the youngest of the four. We had a 75-year-old CEO, a 69-year-old president. So I was half the age of the, of the three executives uh, above me. But I did want to make it clear, it's not a bad company. The Enron and WorldCom weren't bad companies. They just had bad leadership. And this is another example uh, of that situation. But when someone goes to the grocery store and buys a Kellogg cereal or a Sprite or a, or a iced tea or a Pillsbury or a Kraft or a Coca-Cola, the ingredients in there are produced by, and they read the ingredient label on the side of that package or a baby formula. Ingredients are, some of those ingredients are produced by EDM, they would be one of the largest food additive companies in the world. Things like a high fructose corn syrup they read on a label and a candy bar, for example, a Nestle's or a Hershey's or a or lactic acid on a, in a soup or a citric acid that's in a beverage. That They are one of the largest food additive companies in the world. So they're, they're in a processed food or beverage, most likely when someone bought your audience buys a food or beverage, there's likely ingredients from ADM in those processed foods and beverages. Mm. So everybody, everybody probably deals with them. It's just they probably don't see it on a label or anything when they purchase. That's the thing that was very unique for me was that I didn't recognize it. It was everywhere. And then to, to kind of go into the issue that you were dealing with, uh, there was price fixing involved. And when you have a product that goes into almost everything and there's price fixing, which is illegal, uh, tell, us, tell us how that begins coming into play and what your role was and, and how that played out. Well, basically in April of 92, after I was there a couple of years, and you know, you build trust with the leadership and you become part of the, the family where they trust you. And, and I remember getting a, a, a promoted to a corporate vice president. So not only was I divisional president of the biotech division, I also was promoted to corporate vice president of the company uh, during that time. And during that same time, I received a bonus, a check, lots of more stock options. And it was at a time that and that it's not uncommon to get a bonus. It's very common in a publicly traded company, even to happen annually. But at that time was an unusual time. And uh, but I was so greedy and so felt focused on myself. I wasn't going to chase somebody down the hall and say, I want to give this back because, you know, I was all about myself. This is an example of selfish leadership. But about an hour later, I knew what it was for. They talked about someone that was going to mentor me that's involved with uh, with with working with our competitors and our competition. And I learned it's something they were doing for for several years. It wasn't new. And I was assigned a mentor uh, that was showing me how to, because I was so young and they were getting older, they had to pass that baton 
at some point to a, a younger executive and being a divisional president and a corporate vice president of the company, there's not any higher younger executive than that. And I was basically being groomed uh, to take over that cartel at some point in my career. So that's, so then I knew what the bonus was for. So did that buy you, is that buying you off? I mean, I mean, look back bonuses. Yeah, those are fine. But was that just their way of saying, this is the way this works. Here's a nice big check. This is what happens now. I mean, it was about a hundred thousand dollar check and about twenty five thousand shares of stock. So between the two is about a million dollars between the two. And like I said, that's not unusual to get a seven figure stock option bonus. I mean, that happened often the years I was there. It was seven figures most year with the bonuses in stock. But that was an unusual time. So I, I knew clearly that's what it was about. And that's when I really got to the fork of the road. That would have been April of ninety two, a couple years with the organization at that time. And I tell you, I was so greedy and I looked and I also looked at this. Uh, here I am in my early 30s. Here's a CEO in his mid 70s, a president that's just turning 70. And I looked at it. Well, they've been at this for 30, 40 years. This must be well, the way business is done. I'm less than a decade out of college. I got my Ph.D. in biochemistry from Cornell University. And, and I'm less than a decade out of college then. So I really started. I wanted the. The money and the bonus is so bad, I started to rationalize and thinking, well, this must be how business is done. And I even brought up, I said, well, isn't this price fixing? Isn't this illegal? And they say, oh, these these, these uh, price fixing laws, these antitrust laws are on the books. Uh, they're, they're antique. They would have been in the late 1800s. Politicians don't know anything about business. You can't be in the commodity business without doing this. And I started, well, do I, do I look at what the laws are on the books from the 1800s or do I trust the executives that are poured into me? And, and I wanted to trust them so bad because I want to continue to, to be on that track of moving up the corporate ladder mm. to eventually replace them, these older executives. Mm. So so I, I justified. Yeah, you justified it. Price fixing, you knew, were you aware at the time that uh, that laws were being broken? I mean, was there an awareness or yeah. was that a slippery slope that you didn't know till later? At what point did you uh, say, you know what, this is wrong, and I don't even know if you said it's okay, but it's justified. When was that along the process? You said April 92 well, is kind of when it started. Discussion when, in that discussion when they're kind of passing the baton and starting to mentor me, you know, it came up about it being illegal, but they said these laws are so old and a politician knows enough about business and they don't even pursue or prosecute those kind of laws anymore. So they're on the books, but they're outdated and you can't be in the commodity business without doing this. So we can't exist. I was told if we don't do this and I start thinking, well, these guys, 30, 40 years, my senior, they know what they're doing. This must be the way business is done. I was young, naive coming out of college only, a, you know, seven years earlier. And this is the way the business world Operates. Sure. So, so you continue. Rationalize. Yeah, rationalize. yeah. You rationalize it, and you know the the. As I was doing my research, I I kept thinking, Mark, what a slippery slope that things are, because in the portrayals that I saw and the Discovery Channel undercover, and then also even with the movie, it just seems like there were just places along the way that it just kept getting deeper and deeper. So fast forward a little bit for us, because all of a sudden, 
it wasn't related to this, but all of a sudden the FBI gets involved. Tell us a little bit about how that happened and then kind of what progressed from there. Well, two things kind of were happening simultaneously. And one, we were having problems with a new biotech plant. We built about a $300 million plant that was under my umbrella of leading, being president of the biotech division called a lysine plant, an ingredient that goes into like Tyson poultry, mm-hmm. for example, and swine. But it's an, it's an essential ingredient. It's a billion dollar business. So it's a huge uh, business. So in a way, it's a food additive because it goes into, into poultry and then we're consuming the uh, the Tyson chicken and the Purdue chicken and and so on. So we had problems with that plan. And I shared with our CEO, I think we had we had some sabotage problem. I, th- I think someone's trying to I trying to buy time to get consultants because we had so much contamination problems with that. So I was trying to buy time in that regard. And uh, the challenge was we, we were going to be fine with that. The challenge was I shared with my wife. Uh, what was going on. I know my wife met Ginger when she was in seventh grade and I was in eighth grade. Uh, We were 13 and 14 at the time, about an hour north of Cincinnati. We met in junior high, went to our proms together and uh, we're homecoming king and queen. I mean, we spent our whole high school years together. Then she went to Ohio State. When I went to Ohio State, she was a year behind me. And and so I, you know, I trust her with my life and I started sharing with her what was going on. And I said, you know, this is going to pass, but it's kind of nerve wracking where the company has the FBI trying to solve this uh, sabotage problem, which is going to go away. But there's this huge price fixing case that's stealing hundreds of it, so much bigger than this little sabotage thing they're looking at. Uh, here's this price fixing case that's reaching sometimes even a billion dollar year theft a year that's been going on for over a decade, even before I got started. So I shared with her and then she asked, well, how long I was involved with it? And I said, seven months. I've just been involved here recently. I told her about the bonus and the stock options and how that came about. Got to the fork of the road and I told her about how everybody does it. This is the way business is done. And and she wasn't buying any of it. <laughs> so, so hold on one second, Mark. So I think this is powerful. Um, you, you obviously wanted to have a sounding board and Ginger, obviously, who has a high level of integrity based on, I believe, the questions that she's about to drill you with. Um, she knew right away, because these, these things are very complex and very detailed, and I'm not saying that she's not bright or that people, but someone outside that industry, it's difficult to figure out, but she knew it just from the way you presented it that it wasn't right. Is that correct? I tell you. And it is two things. One, she knows it wasn't right, but she doesn't like, she was not like who I was becoming. Mm. You know, she's driving this Wrangler Jeep, a 10 year old Jeep, and I'm driving a $250,000 Ferrari. And, uh, you know, like I said, thinking I was Bon Jovi. And she, she was really sharing with me even before that, that I was not the person she fell in love with in high school, that I was really becoming someone else, mm. selfish all about myself, addicted, obsessed to, to greed and materialism. So that was kind of leading up to these questions. So it, yeah. But she already had this challenge for a few months where she was challenging me. And then now this was kind of the last straw on the camel back when she, so, she started asking who pays, if the company's earning an extra hundreds of million dollars, even sometimes could be a billion dollars a year extra profit, who's paying for that? 
is Kellogg's paying for that? Is Coca-Cola paying for that? Is the people buying the ingredients paying for that? Or, you know, she wanted to, and I said, well, basically, if Kellogg's pays higher for an ingredient, they have a profit margin built in. The, the prices are going to go up. The consumers are going to pay that because they got a profit margin. Let's say it's 10, 15, 20%, whatever that percent is, that's their own strategic planning business. But whatever it is, that's built in. So if they pay higher for the ingredients, that's going to get passed on to the consumer. But I said, Ginger, it could be someone buying $50 worth of groceries and it may be $5 more or $3 more. It's minuscule. Mm -hmm. It's not like doubling the price. It's a few dollars. And she said, you mean every consumer around the world paying three, four, five dollars extra every time they buy groceries? And that's where that billion dollars a year extra profit's coming from. And I never forget, she asked me the question about her grandma. She said, you mean my grandma on $200 a week? Social Security and her major uh, expense is groceries, and she's paying extra for that. And we live in a mansion with a corporate jet and an eight-car garage. She said, "I don't know if I can live with this." Hmm. So that was when it got down to her grandma. So one of the things that's so fascinating about this is that it seems as if she was watching your personality change. And that she was looking for the clues as to why it was. And listen, I, I would venture to say that she didn't hate the car and cars and hate the house. But it seems as if she wasn't as impacted by them as much as you were. Would that, would that be a, a fair assessment? Yeah, well, she even said, even in this discussion, that was a multiple hour discussion that day on November 5th, 1992, seven months after I was being mentored. I remember her saying clearly, even during that time. She said, because I told her, I said, Ginger, our kids go to private schools. We live in this mansion. Our kids have an inside riding stable to ride horses in in the winter, an inside arena. I mean, we've got, if there's a heaven, this is it. We've got it all. And she, I remember her saying, she said, you know what, Mark? I'd rather have a 2,000 square foot house, two Fords in the driveway. Her dad worked a Ford. And I'd rather have my husband back. She said, I've lost my husband to this whirlwind of of temporary, temporary success. Hmm. She said it's all temporary. She was a Christian. Right? She became a Christian 10 years. So this conversation, it was a lot about God. And, and, you know, I didn't believe in God at that point. I had eight years of science telling me there was no God, you know, evolution and big bang theory. You know, I have a PhD in biochemistry from Cornell, from an Ivy League school. So I, all I heard, I even had professors say, if you believe in God, you can't be in my class. A few professors so, but I was happy that she was busy with her Bible study in the church and because I knew it kept her busy, it allowed me to work more and work on getting more bonuses and, and so on. But we were on two different tracks then. And she, she really called me an addict hmm. that particular day. She said, you're an addict. And I said, I've never used drugs and, and alcohol in my life. She said, Mark, you're a workaholic, you're addicted to work and you're addicted to materialism. Hmm. That clear. And the drug that you were addicted to was the drug of more. <laughs> yeah. You just wanted more. And I could relate to that. People on the podcast have heard my story. So it's not, it's different, but it's similar also. How thankful. Never enough. How, it was never enough. How thankful that there are people like Ginger with that moral compass that brought you to probably a difficult decision if I'm reading some of the things I researched because she's the one that forced you to somewhat fess up because of your, when you were having the conversations with the FBI, correct? 
the largest price fixing case in U.S. history, and I think it's the third largest today, still 30 years later, would have never happened without Ginger. Mm. I was coached what to say, what not to say to the FBI, and that case, without a doubt, was going away, without a doubt. The largest price fixing case in U.S. history, Ginger is the true whistleblower of this case, not I. Yeah, because some of the things I heard, you know, and I think these are awkward words to use, and I think you even said so, is some of the FBI agents, some of the others use the term hero to describe you. And I I mean, hero is a tough word, but to me, ginger, to me, it sounds like a hero. It's ginger. <laughs> yeah. The case would have never happened. And I'm telling you something, Tim, that's the difference between a whistleblower and an informant. A whistleblower is someone that does sacrifices everything hmm. to do the right thing. And that was ginger. She, she said, she said that day on November 5th, 92, she said, I'd rather be homeless than live in a home where illegal activity is occurring. And that's a whistleblower that she actually said, I'm telling the FBI if you don't. An informant is someone that the FBI now knows, mostly from Ginger, and I have a choice to either be arrested or wear a wire. It's a huge difference. When someone reads in the newspaper or the media an informant versus whistleblower, two distinct things. Mm. An informant is usually someone trying to get less sentence or less punishment. A whistleblower is someone who sacrifices everything. And Ginger, even though the FBI refer to me often as the whistleblower, that is really ginger. So you so you jumped in, and I mean, we're not going to go into details on this because there's places to find it, but basically for a period of time, I can't remember if it was a couple years or what, you basically had multiple roles. You were an informant for the FBI. You were still working in the role that you were in with the company and, uh, and obviously family man and things like that. And observation just looking at some of the research and I'm trying not to let Hollywood movie interject in this, but it just seems like the stress levels of those roles really, really put incredible pressure on you. Would that be an understatement? Well, we're a wire every day for three years, Wow, for three years. Uh, one of the longest in, in history, the, the equipment that I wore undercover is in the FBI museum in Washington, D.C., in this largest price-fixing case at the time in U.S. history, still one of the largest today. And I tell you, I lost about 60 pounds. People at work thought I had cancer. I was absolutely falling apart. You know, the movie makes it look like fun and games. The documentary shows how serious it was. And, you know, the FBI would tell me, this is serious. Someone could get killed if they knew you were wearing a wire. This is serious. This is serious stuff. And I was falling apart. And then I had this other part the inner part of me, you know, still obsessed with greed. The greed didn't stop. I mean, I was still being promoted even during that time. Mm-hmm. And even more bonuses during those during those three years wearing a wire because I had a career track still as divisional president and corporate vice president of the company. So I had a career track ongoing the same time I was bringing the company down. And then I thought, well, gosh, I'm still in my 30s. You know, even after wearing a wire for three years, I'm still uh, kind of just you know, 38 at that time after wearing for three years, who's going to hire someone uh, that wore a wire against their own company for three years. It's easier to get a job as a felon than someone wore a wire against their own organization. So here I'm, you know, graduated my PhD at 25 and I'm age 38 and my career is coming to an end when I, when I knew that I'm going to be a witness in federal court against all these individuals. Uh, And I thought, 
And then I looked at these stock options when the when the FBI was telling me it was going to come in closer to an end. I looked at all these stock options that millions of dollars that I wasn't going to be able to exercise because some of them had like a five year exercise date on them. And they're telling me it's six months left. And these had two more years left. And I started I started thinking I've got to protect my family. I started then becoming kind of a third leg of this, uh, acting like a company executive acting like an informant for the FBI and also taking care of myself. And I wrote five checks for, not, and this is part of falling apart too, at the time, not thinking clearly, I wrote five checks for $9 million and thinking if it ever did come up that I got this justification, this, that where they owe me this on stock options, but I was going to be fired before I could exercise them. I really thought that would be a, a strong defense. And I think, and I think emotionally, the agents understood. I mean, I, you know, I think they understood, they understood the reason, mm -hmm. but legally I broke the law. It's fraud. Yeah. I mean, so you, you basically then became part of the equation, not helping the case. I mean, we know that hurt the case for those folks that watch it, but you were, you were stealing, you were helping them steal and you were helping the FBI capture someone who was stealing. I mean, it was a, yeah, so it, it was a muddled mess. A <laughs> and a target. Yeah. So a target and a witness simultaneously. So Mark, the thing that's just uh, amazing to me, and I think it was on the undercover uh, documentary, you used the term identity a few times in that documentary. And we're going to talk about a spiritual conversion all in just a moment, because later you came to know the Lord. I believe it's when you're in prison. But but part of the conversation in a lot of spiritual circles is just talking about our identity and who we are. And I guess I want to ask you in, you know, late 95, you know, as this thing was coming to a head, your identity. I mean, I'll just kind of say it just as an observer. This is very judging sounding. What a mess, though, right? <laughs> what was your identity then? You were like three or four identities all at once. That had to be wreaking havoc on your soul and your spirit and your mental state, correct? Well, neighbors would see me, and it's in the documentary. The movie missed, with the movie being a comedy, it missed some of the serious, mm -hmm. some of the serious things that happened. But the documentary captured that so well where they had actors reenact. I was blowing the driveway off often during thunderstorms at three in the morning with a gas leaf blower mm -hmm. during a thunderstorm. I mean, I was falling apart. And I remember one of those times, and they even talk about in the documentary where Ginger comes out and she says, you know, I had an umbrella over her head and a raincoat on and And I'm just out there with my tie still on even. Jacket and tie blowing leaves off. I've just fallen apart. And this was a couple of years wearing a wire by that point. And this was kind of when I started thinking about the nine million that I've got to protect my family here mm -hmm. and really protect myself to try to keep the same standard of living that I'm used to making is what I was thinking. And I remember she said, you need to come to God and, and you need to you need to have God in your life. And I remember saying, well, who needs God? I'm going to be the next president of ADM. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, Ginger, they're telling me and it's in Fortune magazine. They're grooming me to take the place from divisional president to company president. And she said, Mark, those board members are all best friends with, and family members of that CEO. There's no way you're going to. I mean, that's how delusional. I was getting by that point wearing a wire for three years. Matter of fact, the FBI do not allow an informant to wear a wire longer than a year, partly because what they saw happen mm. when someone wears for for three. They, they've even shared with me, even FBI agents that go undercover, when it's long periods of time, it's challenging. Yeah. 
you you lose your identity. You don't know who you are. So one of the things, and one of the things that I think they attempted to present in the uh, the Matt Damon movie was they 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 had this inner dialogue that was going on all the time. And and later you discussed, and this might be a good time to bring it up, that you probably were suffering from some some mental challenges, bipolar, mm-hmm. and and I don't know if they were presenting it there. I, you know, it's interesting watching that movie now. It's slightly dated in the style that movies are done now, but they were attempting like a dark comedy, showing inner dialogue where even when you're in the midst of doing things, your mind was thinking about other things. Was there any, and I don't want to pick apart the, the movie, but was there any, where did they get that from? Was that just scripting in Hollywood or was there some communication? Well, they did get some, they did get some advisors, some psychiatrists about what bipolar, because mm-hmm. when I attempted suicide twice before I went to prison, you know, I had this wonderful plea agreement. All I had to do was sign it. You know, I had full immunity, by the way, before the 9 million. And then I got a wonderful plea agreement. I mean, a, 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 just an amazing gift. And Ginger wanted me to sign it. And I was so mad at her that she got me in this mess in the first place. I said I was going to do the opposite she wanted me to do. So I ripped it up and didn't sign it and fired the lawyer who recommended it. And then went on a track and got eight and a half years. And I would have had six months, six months uh, prison time. There was a two-year sentence, but they were going to allow a mitigating sentencing hearing where the FBI agents could talk about all the, the good things that I did to help them. So the end result would have been a six-month sentence. And I ripped that up. And and then I attempted suicide and then I was diagnosed and hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar. But this was after all the damage was done. And and then I was treated and I could see things differently, you know, being treated. But it was too late. You know, the nine million wearing a wire for three years, tearing up a six month plea agreement. All the damage has been done. Um, But I was diagnosed with bipolar and they did have some advisors that talked about how the inner thoughts of someone that's bipolar. So they were trying to depict that in the movie, someone that had undiagnosed, untreated bipolar at the time. Right. And so they, you've got multiple things you're thinking about, you know, you may be thinking about the color of the tie you have on the same time you're writing a $5 million check. Yeah. Yeah. Or or, those things happen or you've got a, or you've got a wire and different things like that. So it was, it was interesting. I think, I think the thing that was this, the, biggest challenge of the story, Mark. No, it's not the biggest challenge. It's one of the challenges when someone tries to tell it in a 90 minute movie or even just capture yeah. it is that we have had a world. And I, I was thinking about this as I was watching this over the weekend that kind of before the financial downturn of 2008, maybe even going back before 9-11, the world really loved stories where there was a beginning, there was an end, there was a hero, there was someone at the end that we said, oh, look, this person saved the day. And and while that's there's portions of that in your story, there aren't really a lot of winners in that story. There are people that move forward, but I mean, does that make sense at all? <laughs> Yeah, I think if they would have had the personally, I, I think if they would have kept, you know, they ended when I was in prison. Then they show a 30 second clip about kind of what we're doing now. So it kind of it really had no the, the case. The movie really kind of ended in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I was 40 years old then. I'm 64. What's happened the last 24 years? I think it would have been a better story if it kind of had the rest of the story. 
yeah. what happened the last 24 years. I think that was part of the storytelling that was going on in 08, 9, 10, 11, 12, post-downturn. There were a lot of movies that were very, I don't know if dark is the right word. They just almost didn't want to have a good ending. And uh, Yeah, they weren't looking. I mean, he was really clear. The director was not looking. We met him at the... At the um, trying to think the name of it uh, where we walked the red carpet oh, at the premiere yeah, the premiere yeah at the premiere you know we were with matt damon there's pictures of us with them on our website on mark whittaker.com so we met them but he was very clear he was not looking for a redemption story he was looking for a crime drama mm. and to share it in an entertaining way yeah i saw and i think that's what they got i saw that picture on your website and y'all do look like twins just so you know i just want to <laughs> affirm that hey one thing i want to do mark um in the time that we have, I want to talk about experiences, integrity, all the learning points, how someone can learn from what you've experienced, these incredible experiences. But before I do that, I want to back up just a little bit, and I want to learn a little bit about Mark pre-92, maybe pre-college. I know you kind of came through uh, a time that was a couple years before me. I call the 80s when I was growing up the greed is good decade. Mm -hmm. I actually had an interview not too long ago with someone who we had a discussion about selfishness versus selflessness. I believe it was the Richard Louie episode, if anyone wants to go find that. And we had a conversation about how impacted we were by those times that we grew up in. But I want to ask you just, just a little bit. Tell us about what it was like growing up, what your family was like. And what were some things that you now look back on and you go, huh, that could be something that led to the situation that began in the early 90s that led to the situation? Well, I grew up wonderful parents. My mom still lives uh, today, 88 years old, so every Saturday. My dad passed at almost 90. Mm -hmm. They were 66 years married. Wonderful parents, the right moral compass, uh, the only child uh, to go to college out of four. I think I have one brother that went to a two-year uh, community college in, in engineering, but the only one to go to a four-year degree and then on to that in Cornell. Wonderful upbringing, senior class president, uh, homecoming king. I felt like I had, I would have never stolen an apple from a neighbor, not along a, a $9 million in the largest price-fixing case in U.S. history. But I tell you, I think when I went to college, and, and especially when I went to an Ivy League college, all I heard was, for, for one, in the sciences, all you hear is there is no God. So I'm starting to think, well, my parents believe in God because they didn't go to college. I'm starting to think that by the time I'm 22 years old. But I think more so, Tim, I also, all I heard was with this education and the kind of, we're going to make millions with this, uh, with this PhD. And the biotech world was exploding when I graduated in 83, it's when Genetech started. And so it's no longer to be a professor with a PhD. It's actually to go to a six figure job in the biotech industry and move up from there. So I, I, I rode that wave and it's when the, uh, some of those movies coming out, the Michael Douglas greed is good. And remember he played Gordon Gecko and, you know, some of those things, you know, that was coming out in the early eighties and, you know, we're, we're, I think I got caught up in that. I think that's where my life changed. I think that's where I started not being the man that Ginger, you know, that Ginger fell in love with. That I, I, I wanted all those things to, to be the CEO of a Fortune 50 company. And I think my sights of what how I define success became so much different when I got to that college and especially the Ivy League education. Mm. 
Hmm. So I got caught up in that. Yeah. So Mark, interesting. Back to growing up, you mentioned, did your family have, uh, I guess, maybe give me a little background on the faith, you know, the belief system in the faith. And then also, would you, would you term it middle-class, upper middle, lower middle? What, what was the financial stature of your family? You said you were the first college uh, yeah, they were middle. They were middle class and lived for the small town we lived in. I mean, they lived very well, kind of a, maybe even an upper middle class for that little town where my dad owned his own business and owned it for maybe twenty five or thirty years. Christians believed in God, and I heard a lot about God uh, during that time and exposed to church. And but once I got to college, I really I am. I, I remember even telling friends friends of mine. When they'd ask about faith, I said, oh, yeah, my parents believe in God. They never went to college. That was my quick, quick answer. If they went to college, you'd know better. Hmm. That's that was how I felt. They weren't enlightened. They weren't they weren't enlightened like you were. Correct. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's we love my parents, even still (laughs) then and even still today. But I did see that as more of a crutch. And, And then when Ginger became a Christian, you know, at age 30 and we got married when we were 22 and 21. I was 22 and she was 21 when we got, and she became a Christian. I really started thinking, how could she become her? But then I knew she, you know, she went to college, but she didn't go through the sciences. And But I, I also looked at it, kept her busy. She's involved with Bible study. I go to church with her, with sending her kids. And to be honest with you, if someone would ask me, Tim, back then, if I was a Christian, I probably thought going to church means you're a Christian. It's like joining a club. Mm. That's, you know, God in your head. That's what I... That's as much as I had about God back then. Yeah. Christian in name only or a Sunday Christian and probably didn't yeah. even go to church that often. So it's so interesting, Mark, the parallels, because I actually, uh, I went to Georgia Tech. I wanted to become an engineer and I wanted to become an engineer for the sole reason. In 1982, when I came out of high school, I looked at the top five most in demand. I think it was Newsweek or something positions out there. And four out of the five were some type of engineers. I think one of them were chemical and some things, you know, in, in that field. And so I said, I'm going to become an engineer and I'm doing it really solely for that success. And, you know, the, the word came back to me that we brought up earlier. You talked about the addiction that Ginger called you out on. And I'm thinking to myself, I had the similar addiction and that addiction was more I grew up in a good environment that anyone, and it sounds like you did too, would be pleased with, happy. They had joy. They had food on the table. You had roof over your head. Had probably everything one would ever need. But somewhere along the way, Mark, we got addicted to more, right? We did. That's the right word for it too. And that's why I said I could have got to the level of Bill Gates and I would have been saying, I have to have more. Mm. All right, so I'm going to fast. No matter what level, I'm going to fast forward again and see if we could tie this together here in the last few minutes. While you were incarcerated in federal prison, oddly enough, you spent some time in Pensacola, correct? I did almost five years of my eight years in, in an Navy base. I don't want to give away much of the novel that I've written, but the main character in my novel spends a little bit of time in, I don't want to call it club fed because I know it's still a federal prison, but in that penitentiary, interesting. All right. During, at some point during your incarceration, you made a faith decision to really put your faith and trust in the Lord. Tell me more about that 
And, and then I want to tie it to something that I'm thinking from your early years. Yeah, there was actually two guys. When I attempted suicide, that it was in a high-profile case, heavy in the news. It'd be like the Martha Stewart case was. You know, it it was heavy in the news during that time in the media, CNN and so on. And when I attempted suicide a second time, really made heavy news. When I took a six-month plea agreement, now I have eight and a half years, that obviously made the news. And someone reached out to me from a group called CBMC Christian Businessmen Connection. And this was seven months before I went to prison, mm. actually. So it was during the suicide attempts when it really got some media attention. And he started reaching out to me. And I never forget when he said to me, his name was Ian Owls. I never forget when he said, Mark, prison is going to be the beginning of your life. And you're going to find your true purpose in life during this journey. And I'm thinking, I'm just getting ready to go to prison for eight and a half years. How can this be the beginning of my life? And, and he started sharing with me and taking me through a Bible study called Operation Timothy, introduced me to God. And I tell you, I will say, Tim, it started giving me hope. I didn't become a Christian then, but it started at least giving me some hope. And then my second week in prison, then when you enter federal prison, it makes the news when a high profile guy actually goes to prison. And Chuck Colson of the Watergate scandal read about that and showed up and started discipling. And I didn't even know who Chuck Colson was. I knew Nixon and the Watergate, but I didn't know all the other individuals. I was in high school during that time, but I learned Chuck Colson was part of that Watergate scandal, special White House counsel under President Nixon, went to the prison in the 70s, became a Christian on that journey and started a group called Prison Fellowship. And he reached out to me. And I tell you where God putting Chuck Colson in my life was significant. Ian gave me hope and planted a seed but Chuck, he, he started to challenge me. He said, Mark, with all this you've been learning, why, how are you not believing in God? And I told him about this eight years of science education. And I remember him asking me, Mark, you don't think a PhD scientist believes in God? And I said, I don't think there's any, none. And he started article after article and book after book. A scientist that I have great respect for, that the university never talked about their faith part. Even Albert Einstein wrote an article that only God could create the universe and only God could create the man, create man, and the Big Bang Theory was impossible. I never learned any of that about Albert Einstein. And Sir Isaac Newton not only believed in God, he believed in Jesus, uh, and a follower of Jesus, and other scientists, and even modern-day scientists, too, like Don Byerly in Minnesota, who wrote a book, tried to prove to all his friends that God doesn't exist, and he studied and researched and researched, and he wrote a book called Surprised by Faith, that God does exist, and Jesus is the Son of God. And he's a PhD biologist, a language that I could understand. So, so, so basically, Chuck helped me break down that science block. And, and seven months with Ian, a few months with Chuck. By June of 98, which would have been my third month in prison, I, I surrendered my life to Jesus. After reading everything I read that Chuck Colson exposed me to, I thought this, Tim, how can you be a PhD scientist and not believe in God? Mm. I became a Christian my first year. Yeah, and and there's a number of things swirling through my head, but I want to back up to what we discussed that both of us were pursuing during those 80s up into the 90s, and that was we were addicted to more. And listen, we know that there are people out there that are addicted to substances and alcohol and things like that. Those typically get a worse rap than people that are chasing the business type things until they get in trouble. But they're the same, aren't they? But they're the same. They're the same. Addiction. So, yeah. so in June of 98, was that addiction cured? 
It was because I tell you this, it was on the start of recovery. And I tell you this, I was 20, you know, I made for almost eight years. And even before that, I was six years of vice president, living in Germany for four years, two years in New York. So it was making high six figures even then. And then for an eight years, seven figures with bonuses and stock options. And now I'm $20 a month for eight years, for eight and a half years after making seven figures for eight. And I tell you something, at $20 a month, God filled that void in my heart that that no Ferrari, no Falcon 50, no mansion, no eight-car garage ever filled. God filled that void. And I started helping guys get their GEDs with all the education I had. They started using me in education at all three prisons I was loaded. With good behavior, you get to move to a better prison. That's how I ended up the last five at one of the best in Pensacola, Florida. And God started, I, I started, for the first time in my life, I was helping somebody else besides myself. And, and it was so rewarding at $20 a month. And I think God showed me, said, I'm going to show you, I have to take everything away to show you this, but I, God showed me what a servant leader is and how rewarding that is. Because if you're a selfish leader, all you want is more, you're addicted to more and you're never going to fill that void. Hmm. And now that void was filled. And I will say, I found the first peace and contentment I ever found at age 40 in federal prison. Hmm. So a lot of people, there's some people that are listening in going, amen, brother Mark, I'm with you. And then there's probably some listeners going, I don't know, Ferrari, you know, Falcon Jet, you know, all the things you're talking about. And then all of a sudden you're telling me you're making $20 a month. There are some people that are having trouble wrapping their heads around it. But I can tell you, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at you. I'm hearing you. I've, I've studied some of your background the last few weeks. I've been through similar things, and that is the only thing that can cure that addiction of more, and that's that relationship with Jesus Christ. I firmly believe that, don't you? I have zero doubt. I mean, I, I stand sit here today with your audience as a PhD scientist from Cornell. There is no doubt in my mind that Jesus exists and Jesus is the Son of God. Zero doubt in my mind. Mm. And, 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 and Jesus will fill that void. And he will correct. I think he solved, helped solve the, I mean, bipolar, you still need treatment. But I think my deficiency in my faith was more deficient than the chemical imbalance of bipolar. Mm, that's good. I think having both corrected, but especially Jesus had a tremendous impact on my life. And then when I got out 15 years ago, at age 49, 64 now, and my wife and I are married 42 years, was hired right back in the biotech industry the day I got out was hired back in the biotech. And, you know, I started off someone right level out of college and I became the COO of that company, of a cancer research company, a biotech company in California. And now I'm an executive director leading a, a group, an initiative for Coca-Cola Consolidated. I mean, Coca-Cola was one of the biggest victims uh, of the price fix. And so I'm basically working for a company I was stealing from 30 years ago. And God, but the career is so much different now. I mean, I, I, feel, I feel like God said, I'm gonna give you a second chance but this time God's way and not my way mm. and more. And, and, and as a servant leader, I saw how much, how much based on how rewarding it was to be a servant leader in prison. I've been able to continue that for the 15 years I've been out. And it's just been so rewarding, even in the roles I have back in corporate America. 
Hey, Mark, something that, that I've thought about a lot with myself, and when I hear stories like yours, this is one of these questions that can't really be answered, but I'm going to ask it anyway, okay? You almost had to be at one of the lowest points that a person could ever be, most likely. You said there have been suicide attempts. Yeah. Yeah. You're in prison. You've gone from seven, eight figures plus to $20 a month. I want that to sink in again. You said it quickly, but $20 a month behind bars, I'm sure. Ginger seems like a saint, but I'm sure there were some stresses and strains within the household and the family with finances and things. And, and at that point, God arrested you and got your attention. I think it was probably a process that had been going for a period of time. But have you ever thought back and said, could God have gotten my attention in any other way? Have you thought about that, meditated on that? Yes, we have. We have. And even a common question, Tim, we get is, what would have happened if I signed that six-month plea agreement? Hmm. All I had to do is sign it. And six months instead of eight and a half. And Ginger, even though she wanted to kill me at the time, I mean, she said murder was an option, but divorce wasn't. You know, when I didn't sign it and I ripped it up. Looking back, it's a common question we get, and we both look back, and my adult children now do, do too, that I probably would have never become a Christian with the full immunity that I had, or eventually the six-month plea agreement that I then got when I blew the immunity. I would have probably not become, I would have not listened to a Ian Howes or a Chuck Colson. I think I had to be broken. I think God gave me exactly what I needed. So she today says, thank God I didn't sign the six-month plea agreement. I think I had to be broken and have all those distractions out of the way to really find myself and to find out, to find about Jesus and find out what's important in life through Jesus. Mm. Yeah. And by the way, you asked about the family struggle, another miracle besides our 42 years married, which is a miracle. People go to prison. It's 78% divorce rate, 99% divorce rate. If you serve five years or longer, I'm eight and a half years married for 42 years. That's a miracle of God. To be reemployed back into, into, into corporate America, a miracle of God to have a second chance. But also the companies got together that were the victims, Tyson Foods, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, that won hundreds of millions of dollars back from ADM on class action suits. They gave Ginger a whistleblower award for her initiating this case. So my family was basically financed while I was in prison. And it helped my kids in college. It was all done through this law firm named Dick Stein and Shapiro in D.C., which was a law firm that Chuck Colson used to be a partner of before he joined the White House. But that law firm was representing the, the, the victims of the price fixing case. And they assisted Ginger financially. The people I stole from took care of my family while I was in prison. A miracle of God. Mm, yeah. Miracle. I think so they did take the financial pressure off. I think the miracle is, like you said, it's like you were being sustained and there's, yeah, there was a practical or a real world example of that, but there's no doubt that God's hand was in that. And I've heard you tell this story before, and I'm so thankful that we're able to discuss it from a spiritual standpoint, because I think to discuss this story and not have the spiritual does it a real disservice, wouldn't you think? Well, I think that's what happened in the movie, you know, the movie, the director being an atheist, great director, well-known director, well-respected, Steven Soderbergh, but he's, he's an atheist, doesn't believe in God, so he wanted a crime drama and made it entertaining, and it was an entertaining story, but I think it missed, it's missed the last 25 years of this journey, hmm. 
it ended when I went in prison in 1998. And, and I think what we're talking about is kind of the rest of the story. Did life end when I went to prison? I thought it was. I even tried to take my own life. But in reality, life was just beginning in terms of more a rewarding, a life of significance was just beginning. Yeah. What's the future hold for Mark and Ginger or Mark Whitaker? Yeah, I tell you, we feel we feel strongly that the purpose in our life falls in a, in a couple of scripture. We feel the purpose of our life, the why we do what we do is in 2 Corinthians 5.20, which is if you're in a believer, you're an ambassador for Christ. So we feel we're ambassadors for Jesus here on earth. And then the only question is, is how effective a master are you? Are we going to be on the sidelines or be in the middle of the game and get in the game? And we feel God's leading us to be in the game. You know, when you look at seek, go and create, we feel go, that we're all about the go. Go and make disciples of all nations, which is Matthew 28, 19. We love planting seeds, love. Uh, we just spoke last night in an event. We're speaking on November 6th. And a couple's event about marriage, because people walk out of a marriage event with Ginger and I, and they think if they can survive that, <laughs> they don't have the problem they thought they had, you know, with three years undercover and eight and a half years in prison and all the things that, that God got us through. So we feel that that's where God has us, is to, is to share with the lost and the unconvinced that the only way to have a life is significance, to have God in your life. That's the only way to, 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 to beat that addiction of more, more and more. And we love sharing that. And we feel 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're an ambassador for Christ. And how you do it is Matthew 28.19 and 2 Timothy 2.2, which is evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is planting seeds to ones who don't, uh, who don't know. I'm presenting in, in, in Birmingham, for example, on Wednesday evening at an event. A lot of those will be non-believers planting seeds. And then 2 Timothy 2.2 2 is where Paul told Timothy, take these things you learn from me and go share with others. That's the discipleship of someone that is a young believer, but you help them grow in their faith. And I have five Timothys that I'm pouring into right now that I'm mentoring and discipling. I call it discipling more than mentoring. And I feel that's the purpose of our life. And Ginger does too. An ambassador for Christ through evangelism and discipleship. And we feel that is a life of significance. Mm. Well, I tell you, this Timothy has truly enjoyed the conversation and I could continue going. There's so many things I would love to discuss, Mark, but I think with what you just said, that leaves it at a perfect place. You even asked, answered my typical wrap-up question, which is seek, go, or create. So uh, go, 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 go make disciples. Go make disciples. <laughs> um, and Mark, I just want to honor you and, and tell you how much I appreciate so many people that have been through similar situations or business failures like I've been through and others, they they feel some shame or they don't want to share it. And I I just believe you sharing this opens up so many doors. And so I just want to give you honor and tell you that it's such a blessing to hear you talk about it candidly. And I'm so thankful that on this platform, we're able to tie the spiritual into it because to me, that is the story is the spiritual redemption and and curing that addiction that so many people have. So thank you for that. Mark, if someone wants to connect with you or get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to do that? We'll include it in the notes, but where, where can they go to find you? I have a website, markwhitaker.com, and it has a, my testimony on there, which you'll be having this uh, recorded too and being shared. 
Uh, it has a documentary on there, the Discovery Channel documentary on my whole page on markwhitaker.com. And Whitaker is spelled W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E, like acre of land, Whitaker. And it has a contact and it has my email addresses there on my website under the contact tab. Yeah. So, Mark, thank you for that. We'll include all those notes. Listener, I know this has been a blessing to you. I have so enjoyed this conversation. I was looking forward to it, and it did not disappoint me. Uh, my only my only challenge is, is that it could have been another hour or so, but I know this has been a blessing to you. Please share this episode. I know that you know people that are going through some type of struggle, could be in the business environment, could be in something else, and that Mark's words, his comments, his candidness with his story, his his description of what he went through in uh, in the legal realm, but then also in the spiritual realm. I know that you know people that want to want to hear that. So share this episode. I encourage you to do that. That's how people learn about what we're doing, and that's how we're able to bless other people. We have new episodes every Monday, conversations just like this. Thank you for listening in. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.